Oh, good day. Good day, one and all. You are listening to the latest instalment of Which Car Weekly, the podcast that amasses some of the greatest motoring minds to talk about our favourite and most irreverent stories that are happening in the motoring industry and world. My name is Daniel Gardner, and... He's back! It's very nice of you to notice. I mean, it would have been even more nice if you'd noticed I was gone. But well, I kind am, of everything. I am. After, after a, a, a bout of really not very bad flu, I'm, I'm back. I'm back with a vengeance, and I'm very happy to be back uh, with two of my greatest uh, motoring colleagues. Scott Newman, Associate Editor of Motor Magazine. Bonjour. And Deputy Editor of Wheels Magazine, Andy Enright. Guten Abend. Thank you so much for joining me, gentle folk. In this instalment, we talk electric vehicles get political, a spark of hope for Australian car manufacturing, Andy visits Mercedes' hallowed halls, and Dan talks a load of bull. Nothing new there. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> I would object more if it wasn't completely true. Okay, plenty to talk about, guys. Let's get straight into it. The first thing that I would like to talk about is a bit of a hot topic that I've been grilled relentlessly for uh, a day this week. Um, those good people at the Labour Party. You'd never believe that there's an election looming, would you? Mm-hmm. Because Labour has come out with some wonderful things, including, very relevant to us chaps, that it believes, and it's going to do everything it can in its power, if elected, I'll be saying that a fair few times during this show, um, to make sure that 50% of all new vehicle sales by 2030, the year 2030, will be 50%. Did that yes. sound right? That doesn't sound right now. Listen back to it in my head. 50% of all new vehicles by 2030 will be EVs. Now then, does this sound a little unlikely to you? Yes. Andy? Um, I'm just wondering what control they have over this, really. It's, yeah, you know. well, none, really. None. Well, to, well, they do. No, they do. They have some control. They, they, have, they have in their power, in their little kick of tricks, to do what they have not been doing at all, and that the rest of the world has been doing to encourage people to, to buy EVs and alternative energy vehicles. The Australian government, as it stands, does basically as close to nothing as you can, providing people green incentives and buying alternative energy vehicles. The thing that they can do is start doing something along those lines. We're talking tax breaks, we're talking incentives, we're talking uh, shifts on tariffs and importing vehicles. Um, they can make it a lot more attractive for people to buy EVs. You can't. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. You can make people give them all the reasons in the world to buy an EV, but ultimately it comes down to the customer. I see what you're saying. Yes. So this is what Labour is proposing it's going to do. Is it's going to give us incentives at last to buy green cars and electric vehicles. Oh, I had a lunch recently with uh, the general, uh, what is it, CEO of, uh, I think, of Kia Australia, yes. Damien Meredith. Mm-hmm. Maybe COO, COO, I think he is. I don't even know what those letters mean. He's so, yeah. the big wig. He makes lots of cool decisions. Anyway, lovely guy. Always happy to have a chat. And a lot of the talk was around EVs because... Uh, next year at the Australian Open, Kia is hoping that all the cars they use to shuttle people around, all the tennis <laughs> players as the major sponsor of the event, will be electric. They have a problem with that because at the moment there's nowhere really to charge them. The infrastructure's a problem. I can see another problem. Yes. They don't have any electric vehicles. Oh, well, they're coming. They oh. Will coming. They will be arriving for that event. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Yes, we should be. What have they got? What are they? What are you going to tell me off for then? <laughs> Nick Kyrgios uh, is going to be. Should have so been there, and you could have reported on. I think it's a Soul. Um, yeah. Oh, they do. I want to say electric. a yeah. Nero. Yeah, I was going to say the Nero, Nero is the only one I've, yeah. I knew about. Nero and a Soul, I think. And maybe they need, they need 
They need carnivores, don't they? Yeah, they do. But anyway, the the point was that um, he said, A, he doesn't think subsidies work. Uh, he doesn't except they do. Well, he he doesn't he doesn't want the necessarily the uh, the money from the government. He thinks, uh, you know, consumer demand should consumer should demand should drive this. Uh, but the other thing was, I think he said by f- in five years time, it might have been in five years time or twenty twenty five. Regardless, not a huge difference in time. Mm. He expected the market would be five percent. Right. So not quite the fifty percent. So that means in the next for. five years after that. They, the EV market has to somehow go from 5%, which one of the bosses of a uh, car, com- car company thinks will happen sort of organically, mm-hmm. to 50% in five years. Seems highly unlikely, regardless of the subsidies given, unless they're going to give them away for like a dollar. Subsidies can only go so far, though. Yes. Um, it's an easier thing for the exchequer for them to raise the price of petrol and diesel and price you out of... That's true. That's true. And maybe that's another cars that then reduce the price of EVs. And maybe that's yeah. Maybe that's what they'll do. Maybe they'll do a double whammy approach because at the moment, like for instance, a Kona EV, a Kona EV just launched. It's yeah. one of the first sort of affordable electric cars out there. But I think it's still you know twenty thousand dollars more than the yeah. equivalent petrol one. Yes. How much can you subsidise? Like get you know two thousand, five thousand, ten thousand maybe. But you're still going to have a more expensive. EV equivalent. So will people pay a premium for, let's be frank, the inconvenience of an electric car? Ultimately, it is something that the people will decide. Yes, and I think they'll decide no. Well, well not forever, though. I see, not forever, that, no. I see this as an absolute inevitability. Like It's not a matter of if, it's when. Electric vehicles have to happen, and they will work. And it's not like the thing that has annoyed me most about this whole debate is how the coalition is saying... Um, that Labour wants to take your petrol car from you. It wants to take it away. It's going to it's going to stop tradies being able to go to work because you can't buy an electric ute. It's going to pry those keys from your hands. It honestly sounds like talking to someone from the NRA in the US, you know, over their dead bodies. It's like no one's going to come and break down your door and steal your petrol car. This will happen as and when the people want it. Well, as Labour pointed out, what was it, yesterday or the day before, that the, you know, the coalition is rubbishing this plan, but it's in their current... Energy policy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't read it well enough. So. <laughs> the other thing to bear in mind is, you know, how long it takes car manufacturers to develop new platforms and mm-hmm. all that. And in 11 years' time, what percentage of the new car market is going to be EV? Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. I mean, yeah. it's all very well to say, you know, Bill would like 50% of vehicles to be EV, but what if 50% of the, you know, it's an oversimplification, but what if 50% of your options aren't EV? Like, they'll have to be. You'd almost have to have no other choice for 50% of the vehicles to be electric. And I mean, does electric mean fully electric? Does it mean hybrid? Does it mean PHEV, plug-in hybrid? I mean, there's yeah. not a lot of they, going in. They this. are yet to detail the exact surprise, uh, surprise. Yes, surprise, surprise, uh, including ongoing investment, where the money's coming from. It's part of a research and development grant, which is a billion dollars. What proportion of that we're going to get uh, to the to the EV cause, we don't know. Um, so, yes, they have to detail a lot of things about this. I'll, I'll round out this subject as, as eloquently as I possibly can with not my words, because that wouldn't be eloquent, but the words of one of our colleagues, and that is Tony O'Kane. Um, he put it really nicely. He said, you can still, if you wanted to, go out and buy and own and ride on a road a horse, if you wanted to. Mm. And that's the vehicle we always used to ride around on before cars came along. But then what happened is someone invented a car and everyone went, 
That's a way better idea than a horse. Let's all drive cars now. No one came and took the horse away from anyone. You can no. still use it, and that's exactly what's going to happen. As soon as the tipping point comes for electric vehicles, people will just start driving them because they're fine and they work really, really well. And then people will look back, and I, and you can st- we'll still be driving petrol cars, mm. but we'll get really weird looks from people because they'll be like, well, that's a bit stupid, isn't it? Why don't you just drive an EV? They're much better. But my rebuttal to that is, is an EV better than a petrol-powered car? Given the infrastructure, massive caveat, I know, yes. Is it though? Yeah, well, you're 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 speaking from a motor angle. No, but angle. even 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 not from a motor angle. I mean, it's people who don't care about cars. I don't think people won't problem, mind an EV. The problem is there's a massive push to EV, but it's not being driven by consumer demand. Like people, they're trying to create demand. And I'm not saying it's an, I'm not saying it's not a good idea. Like for climate change reasons, and as you say, EVs are very nice to drive for the vast majority of most people's driving. I think people, when people do drive one, they'll go, "Hey, this is pretty good," but this isn't a response to consumer demand and you're still asking people to be inconvenienced and pay a premium and i just i just don't see i don't see the demand there there's still all these manufacturers are massively putting huge resources into making evs and because they have to to yeah. meet all these emissions targets but they're sort of pushing them on the consumer but it com- comes back once again to the way we started this conversation, and that is Labour is proposing this, and it is exactly that, the government, or at least you know whoever happens to be in power, that can alleviate and tackle both those things you said, inconvenience and uh, at a premium. Exactly. Those two things can be, and all the other reasons that EVs don't make sense, can all be pretty much um, relinquished in one foul swoop by the government. And that's I'm, what it really I'm takes. glad to see it actually them taking some action on it. Yeah, so yeah. It's about bloody time that's actually got it's, talked about. Yeah, it's not a very petrol-heady thing to say, but I think if, you know, you spoke to 90% of people and you said you can have an EV or an internal combustion engine and both are as convenient as each other, they'd choose an EV. Hmm. 100%, exactly. And that's the point it will get to, but there's more. It gets so much until better. They start, until, they start, until they start taxing... Yeah, EV oh, products. they'll find a way. They'll <laughs> find a way. You know, EVs will be, there'll be a toll road system yeah. or something. So, that, yeah, there'll be a way. But it gets so much better. Very briefly, uh, Labour has now said that to, to uh, facilitate this 50% of new cars by 2030, it's going to resurrect Australian car manufacturer. And it's going to get EVs. It's going to encourage investment from car manufacturers to bring their research and development and even making cars again, once again, on Australian soil, this time EVs. What do we think about that? Andy, you want to take this one? Um, I don't think it has the money to be able to do that. I think it's vastly underestimated the development costs of new vehicles. You know, a billion dollars doesn't develop it's one a drop in the ocean yeah no, platform that will build one factory yeah basically like i think ford's yeah, <laughs> ford's factory in china to build cars cost one billion dollars yeah so they're going to need to tip an awful lot of money into this uh it's not the case of just oh we'll put a 35 million dollar green vehicle grant you know in place and even so if that does happen we're still left with all the problems that led to manufacturing shutting down before. Yeah. It's cost of labour, it's, you know, geographical distance. It's all those things. Mm. Like, it's it sounds great. And, I you know, I hope they have a magic pill to do it because it would be great. It would create jobs. It would bring Australia onto the forefront as a technology leader. Um, it's, you know, arguably what we should be doing. But to re-establish that industry is going to just take so much money. And when... 
when not 100% of the country is behind it anyway, there will be opponents to this EV push. I just don't see, you know, the taxes are going to have to pay for it and it's going to cost a lot of money. Forgive me, I've been wearing my skeptics hat the whole way through this segment. I want to be as optimistic and positive as I possibly can. But once again, I will say, gee, never believe there's an election looming and we will believe it when we see it. Yes. If you haven't caught up with Witch Car on your televisions already, then you absolutely must. There is another episode coming this Sunday, this time at 3pm. You'll be able to see all kinds of goodies there. And if you don't like watching TV at the particular time it is on air, then you can always catch up on Channel 10's 10 Play On Demand. You can catch all of our previous episodes, Witch Car, there. Do you know what's on this week, then? I do. It's some really good stuff. You and me? Yeah. Not together, though. <clears throat> Sadly not. We're still working on that. Yeah. I drive a Lamborghini Huracan Evo on an F1 track. Yeah, whatever. You compare Renault Megane RS to a Golf GTI. Yes. Uh, Tony sets out in the Suzuki Jimny, an absolute cult classic car that everyone seems to love, and no one seems to be criticising it for getting a three-star crash rating, even though they absolutely crucified the Mustang for doing exactly the same thing. Hey, I'm not jaded or bitter about that whatsoever. <laughs> and I'm going to round out the show with a trip to the Mazda MX-5 Restoration Centre in Japan. So it's all about you, basically. So, really. No, it's only two segments. Well, 50% of the show. Thank you, that's the way we like it. <laughs> Before that, though, let's talk a little bit more about something Andy's been doing, the man who seems to rack up more air miles than he can he knows knows what to do with which island are you going to buy with your air miles this week i don't month? know maybe um maui maui i like the sound the of that. that yeah um you have been jet setting around the earth as always this time it was a trip to germany and england with the good people at mercedes what on earth were you doing there well it's the anniversary of mercedes's 125 years in motorsport which when you consider that porsche has been in motorsport since 1951 that's quite an achievement um and not only that we started out in germany we did the cla launch we drove the amg gt pro at hockenheim went to the mercedes museum um but probably the most special thing we did in germany was go to what mercedes called the holy halls Mm. and this is where it stores all of its historic vehicles and it's over 12 halls and they're just unmarked in fellbach a suburb of stuttgart and they hide these things in plain sight well, I, I do, but I can't, I can't say. You're not even allowed to take pictures in there on a smartphone in case the geotag data from the picture gets picked up by somebody. Oh, wow. And they can tell where these That's halls so are. That's so Mission Impossible. Yeah. So a man like unlocks the door. One of them just looks like a house on a corner. And you walk through what? the front door, and uh, there's a little anteroom and a toilet. And then behind that is just this huge hall. And you walk in, and it's all of the Mercedes Formula One cars, all of oh. their DTM cars all of their Le Mans cars. It is just absolutely mind-blowing. Wow. Um, you walk down there and there's an Uhlenhaut Coupe, one of two that were ever built. And I think it's insured for $90 million, yeah. that car. The current valuation, that now $135 million. Whoa! So, whoa. <laughs> yeah. So, is that the, the world's most expensive car? It is the world's most expensive car. Wow. Yeah, and it's just sitting there. Who, while we're on that subject, plenty more to talk to you about this subject, Andy, but... Who decides it's worth that much? Mercedes. Is it Mercedes? Because <laughs> if that's the case, then I'm going to say my 1999 BMW 3 on is worth a billion dollars. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it's just the rarity and the provenance of that vehicle. By comparison, Ferrari 250 GTOs are, are common. To um, a penny. Yes. But uh, <laughs> yeah, there are 1,176 cars across these halls. It's almost um, enough. Yeah, everything from 1886 to the current day. They take the last car that comes off the line and uh, put it in there in the most typical guise. Um, and there's just so much weird stuff. Like, you walk along and you see things like a 300 SL diesel. And you think, what? what? They never built an SL, a diesel SL. <laughs> but 
Um, and you what see year are we talking? Pope mobiles. And oh yeah, of course we've done a twin few engine, of those, twin engine day classes. And yeah. oh come Arnold, on, Arnold Schwarzenegger's. Hang on, which A class? The one that fell over yeah, when you drove one. around the corner? Yeah, they gave. Well, one. That's the worst idea ever. It can't even stay on two wheels with one engine. Well, maybe Balancers are better because it's got an engine at each end. Yeah, they gave one to David Coulthard <laughs> and one to Mika Hakkinen. And, uh, and oh, well, that's yeah. all right then. At least you got uh, some pros in them. Yeah, they, they've got these cars there, and there's just so many weird curiosities to look at. And you think, you know what I'd love because. You'd go in there and you'd see all the Uber Rare stuff, which would be amazing, of course. But it'd be really nice to see, I don't know, like a 1995 C180 or something like that. Something really boring, but pristine. Yeah. Because you'd never see one. They have them. And, it, yeah. and the guy who shows, shows us around is this guy called Holger. And he's brilliant. Um, and he explains it. It's like a generational investment. So the cars that he puts into the museum now, he will never see like displayed anywhere. And the cars that came in and are being displayed in places now. He never saw them when they arrived. Mm. And uh, you just walk along, and he says, oh, this is this is the first Popemobile with bulletproof glass. And you go, oh, very nice. Yeah, very nice. <laughs> and he says, uh, 6D gauge for the uh, booth where the Pope sits, 4D gauge for the front. And I said, why is that? And he said, more Popes than drivers. <laughs> 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 and he's just brilliant. You're walking along, and he's, he's showing you these cars. He goes, oh, this is 1938. This is 1939. Then there's this gap. Uh, oh, he, no. says, oh. he says, like, we had an appointment in Poland. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Yes. Yeah, he's really dry. Um, Don't mention the war. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's a really, really cool facility. So if you can take five away, if they give you the big key box. Oh. oh. I, I, I don't even have to go to five. I can go to one. Okay. And uh, it's the Ayrton Senna car that he drove at Nürburgring, the 190E 2.316, um, that established oh. him. Um, he was a ring-in for that race, and he was up Pardon against people, yeah, like Lauda, you know, Patrese, all, yeah. these, all these great Formula One drivers, and he smoked a lot of them, and that was how... But that was partly because most of the established players had been out on the source massively the night before. <laughs> so he was one of the only ones who was still sober enough to uh, drive you got to You've got to take your opportunities when yeah, they come Yeah, that's right. But fair play to him. Yeah, but from, uh, from Germany, we flew across to the UK, to Silverstone, and uh, they had a load of these cars on track at Silverstone, and we could jump into them. The oh. DTM cars, GT3, GT4s, and going right back to, you know, 300 SL gull wings and older stuff, like 1906 simplexes. It was really cool. And all, all running and being able yep. to drive on yep. the... Well, That's presumably scary. there was a lot of journalists there from around the world, not just Australian media. So these No, cars, it's all for Andy. They just yeah, like all, all Randy, specifically yes, for right. him. Uh, but they must have run almost flat out all day. Like I saw yeah, these yeah. Valtteri Bottas drifting around in a 300 SL, which you think, oh, that'd be good for a lap, but it must have driven all day. Yeah, and some of the drivers are notably less... Um, gentle on the machinery than others. <laughs> yeah, right. Bottas was absolutely flogging them. Bernd Schneider was as well. And um, it was just cool bumping bumping into these drivers like, you know, Klaus Ludwig and Bernd Schneider and these legendary DTM drivers. I, in the evening, I went down to the loo and just as I went into into the trap, Lewis Hamilton walked into the into the trap <laughs> next to me. So we're sitting there and, uh, you know, we do our thing. Um, and you know that what is your, really what quick? is your thing exactly? Hang on, I think no, I feel thing, we need some clarification. Oh, the, the thing that most people do when they sit down, you know, do, do you got the newspaper out. Yeah, yeah. Um, get, 
What, give but, him a kiss? I don't but, know. We, you know, we both went for the toilet roll at the same time. And, and there's that awkward thing, you know, where you hear the guy next to you going for the toilet roll. And you think, well, I can't, I can't go out now because then we'll have to be like wash basin <laughs> buddies. You know, you know, that awkward kind of, yeah, hi, how's Nicole? Oh, I can't say that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I thought I'm going to wait him out. You know, he, he's going to go and I'll, I'll be polite, let him have his space and go. And it turns out we were both, both waiting each other out. <laughs> and it'd be so, a great opportunity for a number two, Jake. Yeah, number yeah. two driver yeah <laughs> oh, or some kind of race joke yeah. like you you i mean technically you did who who beat who to the flush <laughs> yeah i think it's we, lights out nowhere I, I we think, go yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, skids i, I think skids, that would have been a photo finish the flush but uh okay. I, yeah i came out before him i think he outweighted me i think he was <laughs> checking his insta or something that's his <laughs> no it's a master strategist that's what it is he he, he used his a game race game on you yeah yeah fucked you up. but yeah, it was a really, really cool event. And they had just this huge row of Formula One cars when you walked into the venue. And you, you could just walk up this row and see what was basically the ex-Braun car that they wow, painted yeah, silver yeah, yeah. right up to the current car every year. You could see the development of the aero, like the way wow. that the side pods had grown ever more complex. And, and what, the was, the cool, what was the coolest car to ride in? The coolest car to ride in was... Well, he can't answer that mm. because he tried to get in one car <laughs> and couldn't. Yes. Please tell us about that, Andy. Well... The, 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 the two coolest cars were probably the C63 DTM car, which just vibrated like crazy and was very exciting, and the 500 SL rally car, which a lady called Ellen Law drove, and she's the only woman to have won a DTM round. She beat like Klaus Ludwig and Bernd oh, Schneider. Yeah. So she pedaled it sideways out of the main gate of Silverstone. <laughs> the thing was completely sideways. But, um, I love her already. Yeah, the, the GT4 car was, was a nightmare. There's, I'm a fairly big bloke, and the seat was just far forward and I'm very long in the body and they'd given me this race suit to wear that was crucially about 10 centimetres too short between my scrotum and my shoulders <laughs> <laughs> and, and so you're trying to lever yourself into this car you've got a helmet that's the size of a planet and a hands device on and I got lodged halfway in with, with the hands device on the roll cage and your diaphragm's crushed and you can't breathe and you, you've got like this herniated testicle thing going on as well so you're just like squeaking in this doorway going, <laughs> until someone drags you out of the thing so I, I'd love to be able to tell you what the GT4 car was like but I have no idea well, it's um, enough I went around with the GT4 recently so I can I can fill in that gap thank you Sandown's not quite Silverstone you know whatever but amazing I'm so glad I can fill in that gap at what point do you reckon they they watch you? Do, do they just watch for a shade of blue in your face before they realise <laughs> it's just not going to happen and they pull you back out again? I think so. I think they're just used to these limber little jockeys, yeah, racing drivers, just yeah. leaping in and out. So it must be a source of huge, huge entertainment to see these, <laughs> like, schlubs, basically, <laughs> 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 who are completely stranded, like, trying to get into one of those. At least vehicles. it makes a change. Normally, they're just used to these oh, spoilt journalists who have just fattened up slowly for over the years of sitting on planes and on launches. That's normally the problem. At least yours is a genetic trait. Yes. That you're just very tall yes. and large. So <laughs> that seems like an absolute appropriate moment to move on <laughs> before it gets even more treacherous. Still very jealous, though, of Andy's expedition over to Germany. Oh, we do all right, Andy. Yeah, yeah we're well, we all right. Speaking of which, speaking yeah. of which, uh, I, I drove the Lamborghini Urus. Get out. So did I. Did you really? Yes. I it's didn't. like we've talked about this before we started yes. or something. Um, the reason I want to talk about this is because 
I think it's fair to say that Lamborghini Urus, if you don't know what this car is, it is the first SUV that Lamborghini... Well, it's not, technically. They've made a big 4x4 before, the LM002. Uh, but that wasn't really an SUV. It was a hardcore military vehicle. So the Urus is based on um, the Volkswagen Group's MQB platform? It's either MQB or MLB, I think. I can't remember. MLB, MLB. Sorry, that's the front engine longitudinal. Yeah, yes, the one big one, yeah. So it shares its underpinnings with the Porsche Cayenne, the Volkswagen Touareg, and the Audi Q7. Uh, so it is, to all intents and purposes, a very good SUV if it takes any sort of DNA from those other guys. But the question is, and this is what I like to discuss, is can any vehicle that is SUV ever honour the Raging Bull badge to the extent that Lamborghini enthusiasts want it to? Well, I was very sceptical, as I think we, you know, anyone would be, yeah, because it's 2.2 tonnes. And you can make your own mind up on the looks. Um, before I get into it, I just have one complaint about it in that a case against it is that the concept came out and you think, oh, well, whatever. But at least it looked it looked super sharp and angular and coupe-like mm-hmm. and oh, angry. amazing looking, wasn't it? And it had the 5.2 liter V10 in it. And you think, that's batshit crazy. I mean... To the point where it probably won't ever happen. What do you know? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, the production version comes out. And okay, it's not going to be as good as the concept, but... It's just a sort of big fat regular SUV with a twin turbo V8, twin turbo V8 in it. I'm like, if you're going to make a Lambo SUV, put the Aventador engine in it. Make it. I mean, it's quite to spoiler alert, but it's quite actually a good car. I think in terms of what it needs to be, it's quite comfortable. It's roomy. It, it works quite well. But it's just not quite, like if you could buy a KN Turbo if you want a twin turbo luxury SUV, make something with a V12 in it. Make it totally absurd. Agreed. Uh, agreed. There's a number of points to address there. First of all, you can get a KN Turbo if you want, but it's not as fast. No, it's not. So for the Aventador, they wicked up that 4-litre twin turbo V8 to 478 kilowatts, which is plenty. It's a lot. It's lots more. It's mm. about it's about 50 more. That, no, it's 70 more than the than the Porsche. 74 to be exact. All right. Okay, I'm not good at maths on, on the run. <laughs> so it's a lot quicker. It sounds demonic. It sounds really, really good. It sounds, it sounds better than anything else with that engine yes. in. Um, and the, partly the reason that Lamborghini is doing this is so that they can uh, correct or perhaps um, amend their corporate average fuel um, consumption economy. <laughs> so Don't you love that concept with a 470 kilowatt <laughs> turbo V8? Ah, yes, we are bringing our fleet, fleet average down. Allow me to explain. <laughs> While the Huracan has a 5.2 litre V10 naturally aspirated, the Aventador has a 6.5 litre naturally aspirated V12. These are not efficient engines, no matter how you look at them. A twin turbocharged 4 litre V8, by comparison, is. And yeah. it can actually be incredibly frugal. So that's one of the reasons they had to do a V8. So what we're coming back to here, the core question I feel is, does anyone care what we think? Because no. because we grew up, I still have, I still have the picture of a yellow Lamborghini Diablo that was on my wall as a teenager. I still have it because I love that car that much. Mm. I love mid-engine two-seat Lamborghinis. I think that's what they should be. But but I I am not the market for the Urus. No. And I mean this the big point is we as motoring journalists get into it and it's just spot the Audi bit. Yeah. Indicator stalks, yeah, yeah, yeah. gauges, blah 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 blah. And someone came up with a question while I was doing a video on it. It's like do you does it cheapen the experience? And if you know that, probably yes, but the average Lamborghini owner probably doesn't know the gauges are from an A4 because they've True. never sat in an A4. And if they did know, they probably don't care. They're like, this exists, it works, fine, whatever. Um, so, 
and I, I'm kind of actually all right with it because when you drive it, it's so aggressive. Like it is a phenomenally good car for an SUV. Yeah, it's it's remarkable how aggressive and how sort of exotic it feels for an SUV. Yeah. So, I mean, it's probably not a car I'd buy, but it it really surprised me how impressive a machine it is. None of us have an issue with the Porsche KN because we know that it provided Porsche with the funds to be able to build things like the new sure. 911. Correct. And the new 718. Yeah. Um, but something that I found amazing with the Urus was Lamborghini's claim that people would be as quick in that car around a circuit as an early Huracan, which is a seriously quick car. Did, mm. Does it actually feel that light on its feet? No, it doesn't. I mean, I read that. I think it's around the Nardo handling circuit. It claims the Urus is as fast as a Huracan, and maybe it is around that circuit, but A, probably wouldn't happen on most circuits, and B, I wouldn't want to really try it, because if you really do, if you, it, it does an amazing job of defying the laws of physics, that car, but at a certain point, you go, this thing's massive, and it you know, struggles on its tyres, and mm. it uses up its brakes, and it starts to hop and feel a bit uncomfortable when you really start to push it. Um but all those people that had to walk to a different showroom to put a car next to their Huracan or their Aventador... Yeah, now don't anymore. Now don't have to. And it will, as you say, fund the next generation of Lamborghini's super sports cars. I agree with you. It does. I think, to an extent, it does redefine the SUV segment because there's nothing else like it that rides high and can do a modest amount of off-roading. I've never driven anything quite like it that mm. does the, the job of the Urus. Um, but I will leave you with this, um, and it comes back to pretty much what you were just saying then. Uh I was talking to one of the dealers when I picked the car up, and he said that a majority of their customers are getting out of Huracans and Aventadors, which I found a staggering um, revelation because what it says to me, and tell me if you, are, you think I'm wrong, it means that people don't really give a shit about how the car drives or what it does. They just want a Lamborghini badge. Yeah, that would be yeah, fair. That is interesting. Um, I had a sit down with Maurizio Reggiani, Lamborghini's tech chief, at the Geneva show, and he said that this car is going to attract more women to the brand as well. He said it's going to be like 4 to 6% more women. Um, he, th- he then said something spectacularly uh, sexist. He said, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, it, there is a difference between who pays for the car and who drives oh, the car. Okay, <laughs> Which, all right. Oh, dear, yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that yeah. one very much with Lamborghini. <laughs> um, and if you want one, there is a nine-month waiting list. So whoever who gets the last laugh? Lamborghini does, because it's an absolute cash cow. Gentlemen, we have run out of time once again. No. It's very good to be back with you chaps. We will, of course, do it all again in about seven days' time. In the meantime, if you want to catch up with everything we're talking about online and on the television show and also on our social medias, whichcar.com.au, you is the place to go and in the meantime do please take care on the roads and if at any moment you let that care lapse then do get in touch and let us know about it because we love to hear about all your stories too in the meantime my name is daniel gardner and cheerio